0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday morning time slot this week on May 3rd. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Margo Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Good morning. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And following our discussion, we have an interview with Bob Blenden, Harvard health and polling expert on how health might really play in the midterm elections in November. But first, the news. Nothing really big this week, but lots of interesting odds and ends. Let's start with Medicaid. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid director Seema Verma had a sit down with reporters earlier this week. I was out of town. But Alice, you were there. The discussion was mostly about Medicaid, right?
1: Yes. So there was some reporting that the administration was going to make an announcement at this briefing and decided not to. Um, So it was really just sort of a ask anything you want. Although the main focus was these Medicaid work requirements that they are very keen on allowing states to implement and have approved three states already. And there's uh, nearly a dozen in in the waiting uh including most recently ohio submitted a submitted a waiver request and so lots of back and forth about that now according to a report from the hill what she was going to announce was um a rejection of kansas's proposal to set a three-year lifetime limit on medicaid enrollment uh in the state and um that's Controversial, <laughs> may yes. That's
0: what I. That's why I wanted violate, to talk about this. yes.
1: <laughs> may violate the Medicaid statute uh, depending um, how that shakes out legally, um, and uh, they did not announce that, so that's still undecided uh, at least publicly. Um, but there was a lot. It really focused on the work requirements question, which they refer to as community engagement um, because it's not just work; it could be volunteering or other things. Um, and they yes. Sounded uh, open to Medicaid work requirements in non-expansion states, but she emphasized that there will be a different standard for evaluating those because she acknowledged that if folks uh, who are on Medicaid in those states that did not expand are forced to find work, they will then earn too much to qualify for Medicaid and then fall into the coverage gap where they can't afford a private plan even with subsidies, and. Uh, so uh, she says she'll take that into consideration.
0: Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the, the big sort of ways that this might fall apart legally is that if Medicaid parents or caretakers um, of Medicaid eligible children are are by law also eligible for Medicaid, although not at the same threshold. And a lot of states have these really, really low thresholds of poverty yeah, in, Kansas. in Kansas and it's even lower in some states. So. Pretty much any kind of work will boost them above that. So basically you're saying, well, you have to work, but if you work, if you, you have to work, or we'll take away your Medicaid. But if you work, we'll take away your Medicaid because now you're earning too much money.
1: But which, you still aren't earning enough to afford even the cheapest plan. Right. You might
0: be earning 39 percent of poverty. Right. Is, um,
1: I just wanted
0: to recommend. But if they're, 100, if they're below 100
2: percent of poverty, they're not even eligible for the subsidies. I mean, they right. fall into this like, right. huge that's, right. the Medi- just, that's the right,
3: Medicaid right. gap. I just want to recommend the Association for Healthcare Journalists recorded this um, press briefing with Seema Verma. So I wasn't there. I listened to the audio of it, but it's on their website and it's available to the public. And even though some of what we're talking about seems sort of uh, like in the weeds, I actually think it was a really, really interesting listen, particularly uh, at the top of the meeting where she really outlined what her philosophy was about the Medicaid program and about sort of anti-poverty programs generally. And she linked it back to her own experience early in her career working in public health. And, you know, Seema Verma obviously has made a number of speeches in which she's articulated these views and I don't think that anything she said was inconsistent with some of the regulatory language that has come out of CMS and things that she said in public. But to me, at least, it just felt... Much more kind of personal, and I don't know. It was just, it was very. I thought it was very interesting tape, and uh, because it's available to the public, I just recommend listening to it.
0: And we'll we'll post the, we'll Go ahead and post the link on the web on the uh, podcast page. Um, I was I was mostly interested in this because of what Alice was saying about Cantus, which didn't happen. The the announcement of the rejection, but but I wanted to talk just for a minute about um, the the idea of having uh, uh, limits on you know. Uh, time limits on Medicaid coverage, which is something that they you know, Congress did in the nineteen nineties for welfare. But they've never, there's, this has never been for Medicaid. And, and you were saying, you know, it could violate the Medicaid statute because there's, and I. this was some of the discussion, the Medicaid st- statute is about improving people's health care. And it's hard to see how taking their health care away improves their health care. But Kansas is one of five states that are looking to impose these lifetime limits on Medicaid. Um, and I it, I just, I wonder, you know, is that something you think they're going to do and then let it all play out in the courts? So Sima Verma
1: didn't Give a definitive answer on this. And, but she did say that CMS understands that people's life circumstances change over time. And just because you get a job and it may have healthcare, it doesn't mean you, you might. Not lose that job later and need to go back on Medicaid,
0: and or, so or even just lose hours. Yes. I mean, that's that's a yes. common thing. People churn mm-hmm. back and forth because you know now they're, be- they're now they're eligible again because they've had their hours cut.
1: Right, and so a three year lifetime limit doesn't take that into account at all. It also
3: seems to me kind of categorically different than the work requirement or the community engagement requirement because that. As the administration describes it, it's supposed to be essentially an incentive and a way for the program to push people out of poverty to say, we're going to give you these health benefits, but we expect you to be engaged (laughs) in the community, to go out into the world and work or volunteer or do something like that. And the reason why they support that is they say they want to push people. On track to leave poverty, to get work skills, to get work experience, to eventually build up their income and go to a job that has health insurance. If you think about the circumstances that lead people to rely on Medicaid coverage, we know that most people in Medicaid already work, and many of them already work full-time jobs. Part of the reason why Medicaid is such an important safety net for health insurance coverage for low-income people is because a lot of those kinds of jobs don't come with health benefits. And so a lifetime limit would actually catch and prevent people from getting coverage, a lot of people who are essentially adhering to the overall goals of the program. So they're doing what they're supposed to do to get themselves out of poverty. They're working. Maybe they're working a full-time job, but their employer doesn't offer them benefits. And we don't have a really good system for helping those people get a different kind of public insurance because Obamacare only offer subsidies to people
0: above a certain income threshold. The idea is that Medicaid would help people below. And of course, the reason for that is that that when when the Affordable Care Act was written, uh, the. Medicaid expansion was supposed to be mandatory, so there were there wasn't going to be a gap because every state would expand. Um, so if you weren't eligible to, for the subsidies to buy private insurance, you were eligible for Medicaid. Of course, that hasn't happened, and now in 19 states, there's people who who fall into this gap where they're not eligible for anything.
2: Right, and it, it, the the work requirements has been what's the public has been that's sort of been the the debate and the attention and the news coverage where the switch to and and CMS clearly isn't ready to. Go there. They, you know, they might be in a week, but right now they did not. They had an opportunity to allow the lifetime limits, and they have not yet done so. And we will just have to. There's clearly concern. Um, if she loved them, we would have heard that by now. You <laughs> know, there's but a I long list say, of things that yeah. Sina Verma. I mean, from the moment she took her job last year, it was a letter last March, and there's a lot of things she mentioned that she wanted to change. And I, I don't think I've ever heard her endorse. Maybe I'm wrong. Has anyone ever heard her endorse lifetime limits? I have not. I have not.
3: No, and I, I do think the the sort of life circumstances change argument that she made about why this is a complex issue yesterday—that is not unlike. Welfare. I mean, I think it is worth remembering we do have, you know, lifetime limits for welfare in many states and people's people do fall in and out of work, fall in and out of poverty. But there was a view, you know, among policymakers that it was still worth having a hard cutoff. I think the real question here is not just whether people's life circumstances change, but is health care and is the goal of the Medicaid statute, which is to
0: provide health care and health insurance to people. Is that different than cash assistance? We'll find out. Well, let's let's move on. Um, also in the news this week, Title 10, the federal family planning program, even though the program has never directly paid for abortion, it became law back in 1970 before abortion was legal nationwide. Um, the program has long been caught up in abortion politics. Yesterday, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and the National Family Planning and Reproductive Health Association, which represents Title 10 clinics, filed suit in federal court. They claim the Trump administration's trying to rewrite the rules for the program as part of a funding announcement that seems to make it easier for agencies that don't offer all forms of birth control to get federal family planning money. It's all pretty arcane, but this is still a big part of the defund Planned Parenthood politics, yes? Alice, you're nodding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yes. The, there's a fear that what has happened in terms of international health funding from the federal government, the so-called global gag rule, is going to turn into a domestic gag rule. The Term gag being um, denying funding to organizations that ref- that refer people or
0: counsel even
1: counsel for abortion for abortion um, and so there's a fear that it could lead to defunding organizations like Planned Parenthood that provide both abortions and other forms of reproductive health care
0: and should should point out that that a lot of Planned Parenthoods don't provide abortion services but they do all I mean they're and this is Currently, a requirement in Title in the Title X program that a woman with an unintended pregnancy should be counseled on all of her options, including prenatal care, adoption, uh, and and pregnancy termination. That's that's written into the guidelines for Title X. Um, the 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 gag rule, the the domestic gag rule that Alice is talking about, goes back to 1987. And I confess, it was the first reproductive health issue I ever covered. It raged for five years. It was ultimately that the rule was ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court and a in a five to four decision, but it never took effect because they were still fighting about it um, when Bill Clinton took office in 1993 and made it go away. I was actually surprised it never came back during the George W. Bush administration. Um, So I'm not all that surprised now that it's being talked about. And there was, I guess, a letter this week um, from, you know. Eighty-five anti-abortion groups, forty-one Senate Republicans, and more than one hundred and fifty House Republicans, calling for for its return. So I think well, it's another one of
2: these um, expectations from conservatives that. Um, they have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and, and Vice President Pence and some of the White House personnel are very, very, very closely identified with the anti-abortion movement, and, you know, they sort of, they're, they're part of the base, thought that defunding Planned Parenthood was a slam dunk, and, you know, it wasn't. It isn't. It hasn't been defunded. There's a shift in policy. There's an emphasis on abstinence, but
0: checks are still being written to Although, Planned Parenthood,
2: the- and people don't, you know, they, they want
0: action. My, my political question, though, is that if they were to do this, and having now covered abortion for you know 30-some years, it tends to be whichever side wins, the other side gets energized. So if they actually succeeded in putting through this rule and defunding Planned Parenthood, um, and I think one of the reasons they want to do it is because they're worried about a big you know, blue wave in November and they want to motivate the Republican base, wouldn't it more motivate the Democratic base that's already motivated?
2: Well, they need to motivate. This probably isn't going to... I mean, they're not going... Congress is not going to defund Planned Parenthood between now and uh, November, right? They, they don't have Because the they, can, they don't... Right. They would need 60 votes close. in the Senate, which close. they don't have. So for the conservatives to be talking about elect, you know, in a, in a, a climate in which the conservatives are very worried about losing control of the House, it, it, it behooves them... You know, forget, they're not thinking that far, Julie. I mean, just they want to talk about more and more and more and more. I mean, yeah. and Title Ten people aren't going to totally understand it. I mean, they want to vote. Def- no more money for Planned Parenthood. Right. You know, let's let's cut off Planned Parenthood. Um, and they want an explicit vote and they're not going to get it but by it's it you know we're going to hear a lot from both sides uh, people are very people have always been energized on this issue sometimes some years they're more energized than others and also we're fighting about contraception now not just abortion and that i don't think that has been quite this politically salient for a while
0: although we've it's, it's interesting because we've been fighting about contraception for a long time it just hasn't been so obvious right,
1: right.
3: <laughs> yes. there are, Aside from the political question about the effect of this, I think there are some practical considerations to think about, too. If Planned Parenthood was really defunded or substantially defunded through Title X or through Medicaid, some of the different ways that Republicans would like to defund them, I think there would be a real shortage of the availability of, uh, you know, women's health providers in a lot of states, even in places that don't really like Planned Parenthood. There's been quite a lot of research that suggests that there just aren't enough other people who could take the money, who could take up the excess patients. And that may not be a permanent problem. I think, you know, obviously, if there is this gap and there are people who are committed to providing these services, like they will find a way and new practices, you know, maybe Planned Parenthood will even reorganize itself in some way. But in the short term, I do think that if Planned Parenthood can no longer access these federal funds to supply these services, that there will be a lot of women who need a lot of reproductive health help, not abortion, but contraception and counseling and other kinds of things who really are going to struggle to find someone that will take care of them. And
0: we saw that on the ground in Texas when Texas cut off Planned Parenthood, tried to do gaps. It's a couple of years and there's still gaps. Yeah. So, all right, well... We, have, we still have more to cover. Um, in, in the strange news of the week, Donald Trump's former doctor, Howard Bornstein, told NBC that shortly after the president took office, one of the, the president's lawyers and his head of security raided the doctor's office and took the president's medical files. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders responding to the story called it, quote, standard operating procedure to remove the medical records to the White House medical unit. I covered the passage of HIPAA, the federal uh, federal medical records privacy law. That is not how it is supposed to work.
2: Well, I mean, I think that, A, none of us were surprised to see Dr. Bornstein back in the news. We've been sort of waiting for his moment. We've been hoping. Um, and, you know, he's in the news for two reasons. One is he, he now claims that Trump um, wrote that letter saying he was the healthiest person in the history of the human race or whatever. <laughs> the, the healthiest president ever, 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 and ever would be. Um, so he's had a double whammy of ex- news exposure. Although Bornstein did note that most of the other
3: presidents are dead. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Anyhow, you know, like even George for the Trump Washington era, he stands out. The the um there's actually some hilarious stuff on you know on the metro over here. There's some hilarious stuff on Twitter about people complaining when they try to hire goons to get their medical records. Their insurer says it's out of network goons and they won't cover it. Um, no, I mean I, I don't know what to say about
3: this story. It's like.
1: <laughs> Okay so a, f- a few
2: things
3: that I will say um so one is just you know HIPAA is the law um that r- creates a lot of standards around medical privacy
0: It gives you the right to your medical records. It gives you the right to But But Exactly. It
1: It gives gives, you a right to a copy of your medical (laughs) records, not seizing the originals by force from your (laughs) (laughs) doctor. It also is
3: supposed to protect the transmission of your medical data to people that you don't approve. And so. It is true that it appears that uh, Trump's goons
2: have
0: committed a HIPAA I'm not violation. Sure to call them goons. I think they're uh, bodyguards. One was a bodyguard, one was a lawyer.
3: Trump's employees may have violated HIPAA by seizing the original copies of these records that Thank are supposed you. to remain with the physician. Well, and they belong but, to the physician. But uh, Dr. Bornstein appears to have also committed a HIPAA violation when he told the press uh, some of the medications that President Trump was taking including Propicia, which is a medicine that uh, is it sort of a baldness treatment, but also uh, affects men's prostates?
2: Uh, so so the way I, around, it's a prostate treatment that also is used for <laughs> hair. hair loss. Sorry,
1: excuse yes. me. Well,
0: it has both of those functions.
1: Um, there are no heroes in this story, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> but I, I HIPAA just, violations all around.
0: I I just wanted to make the point of how HIPAA is supposed to work. But Thank I, you, Alice. I, then, I just it it entitles you to a copy of your records, not the original. I
3: just wanted to tie Unless this back you to have more. Goods. But. <laughs> Current events, which is that those are not all of President Trump's medical records that were seized. And like all of us, um, our medical records are spread hither and yon. Uh, Some of them are on paper. Some of them are in digital systems. The digital systems probably don't talk to one another. Uh, You know, The reason why people are making the joke about how hard it is to get your medical records is that we do have a system that for most ordinary people, it is really, really difficult to assemble and share complete medical records in a way that new medical providers can use them. It is an ongoing problem. It is actually a problem that Seema Verma at CMS has made a priority. She is trying to encourage providers to find, you know, to end the Vendors of these medical record systems to find a way to integrate better, to share better.
2: Um, but greater, this is and greater, not just between the providers, but also greater patient access because it's their paper, but it's our body. Yeah.
3: Uh, anyway, I just uh, whenever I uh, come upon these stories about medical records, um, I just always want to like remind people that. Someone's even a, the president's medical records are not like a thing. you they even though these guys went to this doctor's <laughs> office and took certain papers, they did not take President Trump's complete medical records. And even though doctor are more than one doctor over apparently you know, may have misled the public about the exact status of President Trump's health, it is also important to note that he doesn't necessarily know everything that there is to know about President Trump's health, because President Trump might have gone to another doctor for other problems, and we don't know about those things. So I just remember during the campaign, there was a cry, in fact, from President Trump, that Hillary Clinton's medical records should all be released. And I've had the same exact kind of friction in my mind at that moment, like, her medical records are not an entity that can be easily just handed over to the public, even if she wanted to. And I just think it's worth remembering that. I bet Even she's these things organized that we're about
2: it, though. I mean, <laughs> she knows where they are better than he does. <laughs> Well, but but, even, but it's not like your taxes.
3: You could actually turn yeah, over your tax right. returns. Your tax returns, that is like one document. It is in a central place like that exists. Your medical records are just like a big old mess of paper, which anyone who has ever tried to get their vaccination
2: records or even just like get an MRI from one place to another knows. And, and Trump never did release his full records. He released um, the, the letter. a letter <laughs> and a discussion. <laughs> that he that he apparently dictated. But t- are you surprised? I mean, no two people could. Have that syntax. No, but there's a
1: difference between, oh, no one's surprised that this ridiculous letter <laughs> bragging about his stamina was was self-written and not by an actual doctor on the up and up. But it's I think it's, you know, it's 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 more than just a silly scandal or punchline that we knew so little about his health before the election. But I I
2: think that that was reported at the time, that that there wasn't a lot of, that there was a letter, it was on Dr. Oz, it was skimpy, it was there was no, you know, it, it did not tell the whole story. I mean, people did write at that time that it was not exactly... Um, a convincingly thorough examination of an overweight year, overweight seventy year old's health uh, who there said was a he really doesn't like to ex- piece that doesn't exercise that
3: one of the Joanne's uh, writers, Dan, Dan Diamond, yeah. wrote at the time where he was talking to a lot of people about this problem. Like we as the public should care about the health of our presidential candidates, and we need to have some kind of objective, unbiased way to evaluate it. And he talked to a lot of experts who said that perhaps there should be some independent board of doctors that examine each of the presidential candidates and make an independent public evaluation of their health, which would not necessarily be every single medical, you know, doctor's visit in their entire lives. But, you know, like, here's how they are right now. I don't know if that is a great idea, but I thought it was an interesting idea.
2: But we all, I mean, even with Trump in the presidency, you know, when he supposedly had the neutral you know, Navy doctor assessment that was supposed to be, you know, he's the president's doctor, but he's also the public's doctor in this. And he's an admiral, right? And right yeah, and that one didn't turn out too well either. Yes, I
0: was <laughs> yes, that was, I was gonna say that the only other person who we've heard from on Trump's health is Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who now not only is not going to be the, the next VA secretary, he's apparently not going to be the president's physician anymore and he's under investigation well, if by the two hundred States. You are all general. going to be very embarrassed by your criticism of Dr. Ronnie's <laughs> Well comments. we won't be here to be embarrassed. <laughs> We all live in Detroit. All right, one, one more before we move on. Um, uh, but on a side, there's also a
2: slight HIPAA thing going on with um, Ronnie Jackson and a uh, vice president P- Pence's wife, yes. and whether he handled her, or Karen Pence's. Um, private medical information correctly that emerged this week. And we will be hearing more about that.
0: Yeah, so so Ronnie Jackson is, is not out of the woods yet. Um, uh, all right, well, speaking of doctors, Tom Price, that Tom Price, the former head of HHS, who left after Joanne's reporters outed his proclivity for private plane travel, um, gave a speech at a big D.C. health conference this week. We hadn't really heard from him since he left HHS. Uh, and he pointed out that Congress's elimination of the individual mandate penalty and the tax bill was likely to hurt the individual insurance market by encouraging healthy people to opt out and leaving the sick behind. Now, that is what most analysts, including the Congressional Budget Office, think, but it is the opposite of the Republican talking points on this subject. And in predictable fashion, he tried to walk it back the next day. My question is, what prompted him to say it in the first place?
2: I don't know, but Marco Rubio was walking back the tax comment at the same time, and I was worried that they'd run into each other.
1: (laughs) It was like this moment. It was like of, Republicans accidentally tell the truth. Yeah, week. <laughs> it, it was
2: like this. We we actually have he has done a few industry speeches and we've tried to cover he, them. Tom Price. Price and we had actually sort of tried to cover them and he, you know since he can't get in the room, but you can talk to people and he had no, he had made no news for you know ever. So of course the one day we said all right, we're not going to go. We're no, doing It was at eight, 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 eight o'clock things. in the morning. Well, we do things at eight o'clock in the morning, yeah. but we didn't we didn't assign an ex-secretary. We didn't assign somebody to, to go to an ex-secretary's speech since he hadn't said anything newsworthy in months. And of course he he, he said that the mandate. Is essential basically, um, and we, I don't know what was in his mind. But the you know, and then he did walk it back and say, "Well, that's why we have all these other. It would adversely affect certain populations and make it more expensive. But that's why we Republicans are going to do these other things like associated health plans and short term plans." So he he um, tried to. He it didn't denied saying it, but he tried to put it
1: in it the larger make me context. Wonder Who it was pretty he's wild been
2: talking to you know since well, he
3: left office and what kinds of job opportunities he is considering for the future.
1: Right. I mean, I, I think it makes perfect sense if he's more on the industry side now, because the industry is freaking out about this. and well, the insurance
0: industry. Is. Well, yeah, exactly. true, I guess the rest of the... Yeah, no, the no.
1: Industry. I mean, AHIP and everybody uh, else, has, has, not everybody else, but many industry players have been saying exactly what he said, that um, the repeal of the individual mandate, the availability of these skimpy plans are all adversely affecting the individual market, including the insurance companies that provide plans there. And so it makes sense that now he's not... On the political side and more on the industry side, or looking to transition into the industry side, would say that, and the walk back only came after Democrats in Congress seized on the comments and were dunking on him and saying, "See everyone." Also,
3: <laughs> it reminded me. I know we we went back down memory lane recently, but it just indulge me for a minute when we were talking about the prongs. Uh, so when Republicans were talking about repealing the, the Affordable Care Act, Bucket the buckets. Buckets, buckets, yes, the buckets, the prong. I like the prongs.
0: But, um, wait. wait. <laughs> <laughs> the ways they were going to undo the ACA,
3: but there, there was Phases. a you Okay, we, the, bet, the we better explain that. Yeah, so I'm quickly, going. I'm right. going to that. That the Obamacare repeal was one piece of the strategy that they were going to pursue. So they were going to take away things like the individual mandate and other money related things in the health law. Then they were going to do a bunch of regulatory changes, including things like short-term plans, association health plans, which they're doing now. But then there was this third prong or third bucket of the strategy, which is they were going to then come back and do new legislation that was going to sort of deal with some of the problems that resulted from changing the financial incentives but not changing the, lar- the overall regulatory regime of insurance. So there was an idea that, like, if we're still going to have guaranteed issue and essential health benefits and community rating and all of these other uh, sort of what Republicans consider to be onerous regulations of insurance, and then you take away some of the f- subsidies and you take away the individual mandate that you're going to kind of wreck that market. And so what they need to do is re-regulate that. And so in this, in this small way, I think his comments this week were roughly consistent with the overall strategy that he was pursuing as part of the administration in trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is to say – Repealing the individual mandate alone and doing nothing else was never their stated strategy. They knew that that would create problems. I think he just was a little bit more straightforward and frank about the kinds of problems that it would cause in this context.
1: And he – well, that's also assuming that bucket three or whatever we're (laughs) calling it is possible and many members of Congress and many people – we're saying all along that it isn't possible. You can't do repeal through reconciliation and then hope magically later you can do re- replace. Which would need 60 votes y- in the Senate. Which would need 60 I, I, votes in right. the Senate. I think they
2: were hoping, I mean, I think their strategy was... Um,
1: take a hostage?
2: It, no, that it was, you know, once you repeal a big chunk of it, it, it the system wouldn't work very well and that you would have right. gotten some moderate right. and Senate, then, right. Senate votes. And so essentially
1: wrong. take a hostage, break it, and then people will be more motivated to vote to fix it. And but as it Trump
0: turns has out, said out, right. that a number of times. He said exactly right. that. but
2: also... So as it turns out, the regulatory prime bucket, whatever it is, turned out to be where we are. And they've done a lot of damage to – they have not repealed Obamacare. But as we've talked about every single week, it (laughs) is not as healthy as it could be. And it's mostly through the regulatory and other inactions. Regulatory actions and marketing. I'm so excited I got to say prongs again. All (laughs) right. Well,
0: I think we're going to stop there. I'm going to
2: get you a fork for your next (laughs) birthday. (laughs) Those are times. Uh, uh, All right. You're right. right.
0: All right. We're going to stop for the news of the week. Uh, We're going to go to our interview. Then we'll come back and talk about our extra credit stories. So while I was in Boston earlier in the week, I was on a panel with Robert Blenden, who holds joint appointments at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and its School of Public Health. Bob is a polling expert who specialized in the politics of health health over several decades. And I was pleased to be able to ask him about the complicated politics of 2018. So here's the interview. (laughs) Some people have been saying for a while that this coming midterm election will be the first since 2006, where health care hasn't been one of the central issues. Others say that health care will be a driving force for voters in the fall. Who's right?
4: They're both right. So the driving issue uh, will be a referendum on the president. And uh, when the polls come out, it'll say that a lot of people voted for Congress because they were or against it. Then there going to be a set of issues that people say were important. They weren't dominant, the referendum. Health care will be one of the top uh, two or three issues. But the important thing, it will not be around the operation of the ACA. Some people are just too close to this. It's going to be about principles. So what happened in the debate to repeal uh, the bill there was a dramatic increase among democrats and independents on a belief that we should never take uh, coverage away from 24 million people and they're angry and they just want to make sure whoever's elected to the house or senate doesn't come back and try to take 24 million but they actually don't know very much about what's happened in the last year for it uh, a much smaller number of republicans are still hanging in but again it's about principles they don't like the idea the federal government will end up managing health insurance and medicine health care. And they don't think we can afford it. So when they actually say health care is an issue, it's not about what happened to the exchanges last month or anything else. It's they would like something that's smaller and doesn't have the federal government. So the story will be it is a referendum. But among issues, health care is likely to be there principally because these Democratic-oriented voters actually want to punish somebody for the town halls and the marches and the uh, stories about kids with uh, cerebral palsy not being able to get coverage when they're adults. There are a lot of angry people out there for that, and that will show up. But the overall election is a referendum. Do you vote for people who will support the president or, or, or not in the next two years?
0: Is this a mirror image of 2010 when the Republicans, you know, after all the, the angry town hall meetings of people opposing the Affordable Care Act, and then the Republicans, interestingly, mostly ran on the Medicare cuts in the ACA, um, and Republicans, as we know, took over the House?
4: People missed about 2010. Uh, there was a referendum on President Obama, and it was quite mixed. And the referendum, which was tied to health care, was we were in the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression. A lot of voters thought he got his priorities wrong. He shouldn't be running around trying to build these big health care when businesses are closing, people can't get loans. So there was an anger about his priorities and there was a uh, scared about what this ACA thing meant. Even though people like the idea of universal coverage, uh, it can get very practical when you get down the policies. What happens to my family, my neighborhood, my business? And this bill scared them. So the two about, how come you're working on this when the plants are closing? And what I've heard about, it scares me, really it led to a referendum where, in fact, the Republicans took over. And the focus on Medicare is always important because seniors have gone from the most Democratic-leaning group to many of them now-leaning Republican. And so protecting Medicare turns out to be, on both sides, a very important uh, issue for what a swing group who turn out and off your elections could care about.
0: So— what do we think we know about what voters want from health care right now? You said it's a very sort of broad brush thing.
4: The uh, problem is that people are, are tied up more broadly in, in principle side. And the activists in the Democratic Party are going to shock everyone. They are really going to be pushing for some sort of a government, a single payer. And it's around fairness and equity. They're not into how to fix the cost issue and everything. They just think the same card and same benefits for everybody is very fair. Also, the next generation has not a lot of love for for for-profit insurance companies. Uh, uh, for that. And on the Republican side, it's going to be uh, re- repealing and tearing out root and all is gone. But some alternative, which leaves people covered, it's less expensive, and it's run by states, is really going to be the big political uh, 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 issues. Everyone thinks costs are a problem, and that will be politically with us. But the problem of the cost issue, solving it threatens not only doctors and hospitals, it threatens a number of middle-income people when they hear their benefits will be capped, they'll be limited, they can only go to certain networks. So the cost issue has a real downside because the solutions don't sound right to a large number of people. So it'll be the top issue, but it's very tough to find a political solution that, at the end of the day, makes voters feel better about you.
0: What would we have to do to get to a point where the electorate could make a statement about health care that lawmakers could then act on?
4: We're going to continue to have two sets of debates. Uh, And one debate will be elections, which are general principles. Where do we want to go? More government, less government, more action. And then we're going to have to have, after the election, depending on the mix, a debate of where we go next. But the the issue is this country is more polarized politically. It's not just on health care, on almost every domestic issue. So the the nature of the debate just cannot take forward unless... One party is dominant uh, or another. So it requires a change. And people don't want to go back and remember that when Medicare was enacted, LBJ had the biggest liberal sweep in in my lifetime history uh, uh, for that. And this could happen in the next presidential election or a more conservative sweep. But you have to start with where the majority parties uh, uh, really are. And then you really are going to focus on what uh, individual policies are. The dilemma is if you look beneath the surface, it's very hard to get bipartisan support on anything but medical research. Uh, we just have lost the ability to talk to each other across party lines. So a lot of the big changes will occur if one party ends up in a cycle. Dominant, they will move in one direction, and if they in in the other. Uh, but these debates are not over because The Democrats are not happy uh, with, we're just going to fix the ACA, which if you talk to policy experts, they're all in the, if we only adjusted this or that or or, or for that, and particularly in the presidential election, they're going to find people running in the primaries flat out by saying, let's do something big, let's do something real, while the others are saying, no, no, I just want to subsidize the exchanges. That doesn't make good election talk.
0: Yeah, that was my next question, which is that we've talked a lot on this podcast about internal divisions among Democrats, single payer versus sort of more incremental among Republicans about, you know, pull out the ACA root and branch or leave the popular parts and just repeal the rest. Which party is more divided on this?
4: Uh, So uh, actually, uh, both parties uh, are divided. The Democrats passionately care about this issue. But the next wave of Democrats who are quite active, liberal, younger, uh, they want a big change from the private insurance side. The Republicans are, are divided, but they have taken such a beating uh, in the last uh, session, and particularly if they lose seats around this, uh, there will be an effort to find something that is credible that they can uh, uh, live with. A continuing battle between the far out conservatives. And people in moderates will guarantee they're in the minority party for a number of 40 years. So I do believe uh, by the time we hit 2020, you're going to be surprised there'll be some interim bill. In my view, it's going to look like a modified Graham-Cassidy bill, which gives states an awful lot of authority. And the trade-off is you're not going to take coverage away from 24 million people. It may be skimpier, uh, more choices, but they're going to have to have a larger, uh, larger bill. But because we're likely to have this big primary on the Democratic side, people are going to be taken back because for a year, uh, the more liberal candidates are just going to start out with single payer. Uh, And they're not going to want to have a discussion about fixing the ACA. And that's really going to uh, catch mainstream Democrats because what, what do I do about this? And my view is they may have to consider something that's attractive, buying into Medicare or something that says, I am not for just fixing exchanges for insurers for five more years. We have another alternative, but it doesn't leave the federal government providing insurance to everybody. But it's going to be a much bigger debate than anybody can imagine who thinks this is all settled now that the ACA is limping, but it's still there.
0: Is this the most divided, since you've been doing this, what, 30-some years, is this the most divided the electorate has been on health care, while health care has been sort of a prominent issue? Uh,
4: So, uh, they have been divided. The thing that is different is that the electorate has divided, if you look at the Pew polls, on 7 to 10 domestic issues. They're now 15 to 20 points apart. So, it makes it harder to find an agreement. If all I disagree with you as a Republican or Democrat is health care, maybe we can find something in the middle. But it turns out I don't agree with you on taxes. I don't agree with you on welfare. I don't agree with you on foreign aid. And you just go down these lists. So there's not a lot of incentive for the next generation of Republicans and Democrats to find one issue to agree on. So these divisions are very, very real. And I think we're going to have cycles where the dominant party is going to shape health policy. Uh, And the risk is if you're in the 20-year thinking, uh, the other party can come in and make some pretty dramatic changes for it. But I don't see a consensus. I just see if one party is in the majority, they will push health care because it's important to their voters. But it won't look the same. There's just no uh, Lyndon Johnson hugging some number of Republicans who voted for the Medicare bill. I don't think we're going to see that in the future.
0: The, The debate will continue. Yes. Robert Blendon, thank you
4: very much. Thank you very much, too.
0: Okay, now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first? Joanne. Uh, There was a really good piece in The Times this week in The New York Times uh, by
2: Abby Goodenough. Injecting drugs can ruin a heart. How many second chances should a user get? Um, And it's a complex story. Basically, drug users, uh, meth as well as opioids and other other things, can end up with these life-threatening heart valve infections. Endocarditis is the technical word. It's complicated, dangerous, and expensive to treat. Um, They can get reinfected. Um, the survival rate's not great, and there are doctors grope, grappling with how often do you repair them. And there, there was a focus in this story about one doctor who's trying to say, you don't just repair the heart, you've got to get them into treatment and get them a shot at getting clean and getting healthy. And it's, very, it's a complicated bioethics coverage, opioids, everything in the mix story.
0: It's almost like giving organ transplants to, you know, or liver transplants. They said, there was a quote in the
2: story it's like giving a liver liver transplant to a guy drinking a fifth of a while you operate. Yeah, that was sort of the.
0: Margo.
3: Uh, I wanted to mention a story that ran in Politico this week from Arthur Allen about a friend of the president's uh, who is a -a Mar-a-Lago member and a physician named Dr. Bruce Moskowitz. And uh, Dr. Moskowitz apparently is unhappy with the medical records system that Cerner has provided to the hospitals that he practices in in Florida. And as a result, he has personally intervened to try to prevent the Veterans Administration from completing an $18 billion acquisition of a medical records system from the same vendor. And it's just just a a really... um, Incredible story of how this person who is close to the president has interfered with this major, major federal procurement contract uh, that, in fact, was initiated at the behest of other people in the White House. And, you know, it appears that many of his complaints about the system are actually not even remotely relevant to the system that the Veterans Administration wants to buy, that it just so happens that his Hospitals use a different version of the software that has fewer features.
2: And out of date, it hasn't been upgraded. <laughs> right. So it's a couple years old. It hasn't been upgraded. And we should right.
0: point out, he's been on the conference calls. Where I mean, the <laughs> official conference calls where they're discussing, you know, trying to, to make this happen. This is, this is one of those stories that you literally could not make up. If you were to write this as fiction, it would be rejected because nobody would believe it. And
1: it's exactly what people feared when the focus was on this this club membership sort of system at the president's businesses where people could pay a great sum of money to have this kind of access and this kind of sway in major national public policy. But, but what's fun got about this one... But health
2: records onto MSNBC, so...
1: Well, but I feel like, you know, like this
3: guy isn't trying to enrich his own company. You know, there's not graft exactly. It's just like he has really, he happens to have personal strong opinions
1: about this thing. Sure, but he couldn't communicate those personal strong opinions to the president of the United States if he wasn't a paying member of Absolutely. this club, and yeah. as regular
2: listeners know, we get really excited when we can say a story is crazy pants, and this one this is, what is crazy. This pants.
0: one is crazy pants. <laughs> All right, Alice, you're just a little, a little more staged. a
1: little more sad over here. Um, so there's a there's a great new uh, report out of the Commonwealth Fund uh, tracking the. Uh, number of people who are uninsured, and it is up a lot uh, since uh, the administration came into power in 2016. There's about 4 million more people of working age who are uninsured, and they attribute it to the administration's policies, among them slashing uh, outreach for open enrollment, cutting the length of open enrollment, repealing the individual mandate like we just talked about, Um, and they predict that even more the numbers, will continue, the numbers of people without insurance will continue to climb in 2019 because of those factors and because of the availability of these skimpy plans, um, which will raise premiums for the comprehensive plans and price people out of the market, etc. Um, interestingly, they found that, well, this is to be expected, but the rates are climbing much more in states that did not expand Medicaid, which are Republican states. And so... Under a Republican president, many more Republicans uh, are uninsured.
3: Uh, just a, a word of caution, which is that there are a couple of different organizations that have been measuring this using surveys, and there hasn't been complete convergence on what the trend is. So I do think this Commonwealth Fund survey is worth thinking about, and certainly the results seem consistent with like approximately what our expectations might be given the policy environment. But I think we have to keep our eyes open. There are a couple of government surveys coming out in the next few months that will either confirm or conflict with this and give us probably a, a a sort of deeper picture of what's going on yeah, with their shirt rate. Yeah. And
0: yeah. and we'll talk about those when they happen. Um mine is 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 similarly, kind of a, a, a peek into the present as a uh, you know way to look at the future. Um, it's from my Kaiser Health News colleague, Rachel Bluth. It's called Peak Health Plan Premiums Give Rise to Activism and Unconventional Solutions. Uh, it's about how there's just one sh- one insurer serving Charlottesville, Virginia right now, and the, the price of them to come back into the market was that the premiums are sky high. So this one family moved in with their college student daughter in Richmond, so they could buy insurance there. Um, I think the college student daughter was not so thrilled with this, uh, and I'm highlighting this piece because right now there's only a few places like Charlottesville where there's just one one insurer, and the premiums are, are unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, but that's likely to change next year for all the reasons that we've been talking about the the you know elimination of the individual mandate, the possibility of short-term plans and association health plans. So I think I think most people are expecting to see far more places with only one insurer and unaffordable premiums. So we may see more parents moving in. With their college yeah, And that student, is also a, a
2: region that only has, also has one very dominant health system, the right. University of Virginia, yeah. medical system, health, and so you have one dominant, you have one insurer and one dominant provider network
0: in hospital. so it just it was not a happy... Yeah, that's that's not a good prescription for competition and lower prices.
1: But also, it it also plays into the current very heated debate about expanding Medicaid in Virginia, which would not necessarily sweep up and help all of these families. It but, would not help
0: this family, it but, help but, help lot, but there are a but lot, lot it of, could
1: help hundreds of
0: thousands
3: (laughs) there are I just want to note that moving is probably not going to be a viable solution for most people who are in very expensive insurance markets and in fact what we've seen is that very few people have moved or it appears that very few people have moved even who live very close to state borders in order to take advantage of a Medicaid expansion Uh, so there are plenty of places where like on one side of the line there is no Medicaid expansion on the other side there is it doesn't look like people are really moving to take advantage of that and so while uh, this family has found a creative solution, uh, probably the more likely outcome is that there just are going to be people who are going to be priced out of the market and still kind of stuck there.
0: Yes, indeed. All right. Well, on that note, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us if you have questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Rovner.
2: I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein.
0: We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.